Murder in the North, Episode 24, My Father Will Be to Blame. When a 14-year-old girl is found floating in Presto Harbour, news of her death doesn't come as a surprise to those who knew her. The police, her teachers, as well as children's services have tried their best to protect the girl. But all their efforts turn out to be in vain. Freya, whose real name is Sinai, arrived in Denmark at the age of nine. She's intelligent, sociable, and mature for her age. And it doesn't take her long to make friends with other children her age and to adapt to the local culture. For some, it all happens too fast. Her parents, who are deeply religious Turkmens from Iraq, see their daughter transform from an obedient girl into an independent young woman. And that causes friction. You're listening to Murder in the North, a podcast about some of the most shocking criminal cases in Scandinavia. Our account of these cases is based on sources in the public domain, including interviews, press releases and court proceedings. Some narrative details were seen as irrelevant to the plot and therefore left out. This podcast series contains scenes of violence that some listeners may find distressing. You're listening to a true story, as researched by Jana Argard and told by me, Jenna Sharp. In the early 1990s, Sanai's father, Ashraf, deserts the Iraqi army and flees to Istanbul. A few years later, he's joined in Turkey by his wife, Sahela and their daughter. In 1996, Ashraf leaves for Denmark, and on arriving at Copenhagen Airport, he applies for asylum. He tells the authorities that he spent time in an Iraqi prison following his desertion, but that his wife managed to free him by bribing a judge. After 10 months in an asylum seeker centre on the island of Bornholm, he's granted asylum and he applies for family reunion. In 1997, he welcomes his heavily pregnant wife and his nine-year-old daughter Sinai in Denmark. The family is allocated a home in Presto, some 80 kilometres south of Copenhagen. But the transition from a refugee life to one in a Danish terraced house is anything but smooth. In the autumn, Sanai starts primary school. This is the first time in her life she's ever been in formal education. And it takes her a while to get used to life in a Danish school and to learn a new language. While in Turkey, she had taught herself Turkish. Soon, Sanai's behavior changes. She doesn't want to play with dolls anymore and starts behaving like a teenager. Her teachers think that she may be older than her parents claim she is. In year eight, when Sanai turns 12, she gets her period for the first time. That now makes her an adult in her parents' eyes. 
Her mother wants her to stop going to school and look after her little brother, who was born shortly after they arrived in Denmark. It leads to a conflict between her parents and the school. Sinai is smart and eager to learn and now speaks fluent Danish, yet her parents want her to help out at home. While Sinai may be lagging behind her peers as far as schoolwork is concerned, when it comes to life experience, she is well ahead of them. She thinks deeply about the meaning of religion, wonders why there are multiple religions and whether some are more righteous than others. She also often meets up with a boy from another school, but never mentions him at home for fear of her parents' reaction. Sinai's form tutor, Lone Jensen, likes her and sees the girl struggle with her parents' expectations. Sinai feels Danish and would like to be called Freya. To her father, that's a slap in the face. Ashraf's life in Denmark is far less interesting than he'd hoped. He attends the local language school and works cash in hand as a dishwasher in a pizza restaurant. And his wife is always on his case about becoming more involved in Sinai's upbringing. He does so by disciplining his daughter. He hits her with the flat of his hand, with his fists, and sometimes even with a curtain rod. In March 2000, Sinai's form tutor notices that she's looking sad and that she's missing classes. During a chat, Sinai tells her mentor that the violence is making her scared to go home. And not only that, now her friends have threatened to tell her parents that she has a boyfriend, and that's bound to result in further punishment. A few months earlier, Ashraf and Suhaila had found a photo of a boy in Sinai's room. It enraged Ashraf so much that he tried to strangle his daughter with a cable until she lost consciousness. Lone tells Sinai that child services can remove her from her parents' care if they're violent towards her. With the girl's consent, the form tutor then contacts the police. It turns out she's right. The police talk to Sinai and arrange for her to go to a foster family that evening. The next day, the police interview Sinai as well as her parents and her friends. Sinai says that she doesn't understand why her mother and father beat her. The constant physical violence at home makes her question whether she actually is her parents' biological child. She also mentions two rapes by fellow immigrants while the family was in Turkey. And it turns out that she's a year older than was indicated on the family reunion documentation. But above all, Sinai is worried about her little brother's safety. If her parents think nothing of hitting her, what might they do to him? Children's services conclude that Sinai is the victim of neglect and house her with a foster family in Presto. Her new living arrangements take some getting used to, and she has frequent nightmares. The safety of her little brother is always on her mind, and in messages to her social worker, she reveals the identities of those who sexually abused her in Turkey. 
When Ashraf and Suhaila demand to see their daughter, a supervised meeting is arranged at the local child protection offices. At this gathering, Sanai's parents put a lot of pressure on her and try to convince her to come home, not least because of the shame they feel of having a daughter removed by the authorities. They try to keep it a secret from the outside world and claim that she's gone back to Turkey, but Sanai won't be talked into returning home. She has a boyfriend, likes to go to school and loves being in Denmark. She wants to be known as Freya and doesn't want to be a Muslim. She even asks her foster mother if she can call her mum. But without telling anyone, Sanai does go and visit her parents just to see how her little brother is doing. These visits cause a lot of conflict. Sanai's parents apply for a passport for her and are adamant that she should marry a Muslim man. During an argument over whether or not she's pure, Sanai tells her parents about the two rapes in Turkey. Ashraf threatens to murder her Danish boyfriend because he must have taken her innocence. In response, Sanai yells that there was nothing left to take. She flees the house and begs a taxi driver at the station to come to her aid because her father is chasing her. Help, she says. My father wants to kill my boyfriend. Call the police. Because of the ongoing procedure, the police respond at once and take Sanai safely back to her foster family in Presto. The police then conclude their investigation and the public prosecution service charges Ashraf with mistreatment of his daughter. Sanai testifies during the hearing in January 2001 and the taxi driver confirms her statements. Ashraf is sentenced to six months in prison. Suhaila escapes with a 10-day suspended sentence. When the verdict is announced, Suhaila walks out of the courtroom and tries to throw herself in front of a car. The vehicle breaks just in time. Suhaila is now pregnant with her third child. While her husband is away, serving his sentence for mistreating Sanai, she puts huge pressure on her daughter and the staff at child services to get her home again. There will soon be another little person to look after. Ashraf is released in June. Fearing for their reputation, her parents now promise Sinai the earth. In a strange way, Sinai now actually has some power over her parents. And so, after two years with her foster family, Sinai moves back in with her parents at the start of 2002. She tells her former foster carers that her father has been transformed by his time in jail. But Sanai soon questions her decision. Her foster mother is extremely worried too. She loves Sanai and is scared that something will happen to her. Sanai tells her, If something happens to me, my father will be to blame. When Sanai returns home, her parents try their best. 
She's given more freedom than before. She's allowed to go out, and they even let her bring her new Turkish boyfriend home. They want to meet him. The downside is that Sanai starts going to parties and misses a lot of school. But Sanai's mother has had a difficult pregnancy, and shortly after the birth, she and the newborn girl have to go into hospital. While she's away, Ashrav is expected to keep an eye on their elder daughter. Sanai has been living back home for about three weeks when she disappears around midnight on Saturday the 8th of February. She had invited her boyfriend, his younger brother, and a couple of friends over. They spent the evening drinking and dancing and making a lot of noise, much to Ashraf's annoyance and that of their neighbours too. Later, Sanai and her father drive to a nearby petrol station to buy a prepaid SIM card. At 9am on Sunday morning, a fisherman calls the police. He has found a lifeless body in the freezing cold waters of Presto Harbour. It's a girl, or a young woman. She has no phone or any form of ID on her. The emergency services try to resuscitate her at the scene, but eventually she's pronounced dead. The gaping wound on the back of her head led the police to believe that they aren't dealing with an accident. The autopsy confirms their suspicions. The victim has been beaten over the head with a blunt object, hit in the face, and her arms show signs of defensive injuries, which suggest that she put up a fight. The cause of death is a combination of violence and drowning. It's difficult to say how long her body may have been in the seven-degree water, but forensic investigators later put the time of death at somewhere between 3 and 9 in the morning. The police cordon off the area around the harbour and spend a long time investigating the crime scene. They identify tyre tracks that definitely require a closer look. Later that Sunday, the 9th of February, the local police hold a press conference about a girl found murdered in Presto Harbour. In the meantime, the girl's remains are taken to the Forensic Science Centre in Copenhagen, where her face is photographed. With this image, police officers take to the streets in the hope of identifying the girl. Fortunately, a passerby recognises Sanai. The police phone her foster mother and ask her to come in on Monday morning to identify the body. Also on Monday, Ashraf, along with Sanai's boyfriend, turn up at the police station to report Sanai missing. Sanai's boyfriend especially is worried after hearing that a girl was found in the harbour. Because this type of murder case is too complex for the local police department, the National Force is brought in for assistance. Kurt Crow a long-serving detective, heads up the investigation. Sinai's murder is a case he'll never forget. He's a father himself, and at first, he struggles to see Ashraf as a suspect. How could anyone murder their own daughter? 
but as an experienced police officer, he has learned to set aside his feelings and to focus on the facts. Using phone data, witness statements, and forensic evidence, the investigators reconstruct Sanai's final evening. Her last sign of life was a text message exchange with a friend shortly before midnight. But her bag with her phone inside is never found. The tracks in Presto Harbour are found to be a match for the left tyres of Ashraf's white Toyota Corolla. But then again, hundreds of cars in Denmark are fitted with those tyres. The family vehemently deny any involvement in the murder. They point the finger at, in their words, Sinai's many boyfriends. One of them must have harmed her. But conversations with friends and acquaintances of the family cast a fresh light on the case. Ashraf was ashamed of his daughter's behaviour and gradually washed his hands of her. But seeing her daughter's perceived excesses, Sahela put pressure on her husband and demanded that he take action. Two witnesses come forward. Neighbours saw Sanai's parents dragging two large carpets out of their house, cleaning them, and then hanging them out to dry. The police are given permission to tap the parents' landline and their mobile phones, and in the months that follow, the investigators' suspicions are confirmed. Having been interviewed multiple times, the couple have become nervous and are arguing about who exactly is responsible for their daughter's death. Ashraf, I told you not to kill her. There was still a chance she could have got married, Suhaila says on the phone, to which Ashraf replies, Didn't you tell me she had to die? This is all your fault. In June, some four months after Sanai's death, her father is arrested. He's prepared and immediately contacts a lawyer, and when he appears in court, he enters a not-guilty plea without showing much emotion. He's remanded in custody, so he can't obstruct the investigation. Meanwhile, his sister-in-law gives a statement outlining everything Ashraf did on the Saturday leading up to Sanai's murder. It's also discovered that the couple lied about their escape from Iraq and how their sister-in-law was brought to Denmark under false pretenses and forced to marry Ashraf's brother. The Special Crimes Unit, which deals with human trafficking, among other things, opens a separate investigation to look into these claims. In November, the police conclude their investigation into Sanai's case. Charges are brought, and the trial is scheduled for the spring of 2003. Suhaila tells a journalist at newspaper Julensposten that her family was happy until the authorities took Sanai away from them. Now she's all alone in her terraced house, with only her one-year-old daughter and five-year-old son for company while Ashraf is in custody, pending his trial. Suhaila herself has charges of human trafficking and falsifying documents hanging over her. 
Audio recordings on which the couple can be heard arguing are played during the trial. An interpreter is brought in to translate because Ashraf and Suhaila talk to each other in Turkmen. However, on several occasions, the defense claims that the translation is incorrect or that the conversation isn't about the daughter but about the sister-in-law. And outside the courtroom, an altercation takes place when Suhaila verbally attacks Sanai's form tutor, who's due to give evidence. You're my daughter's real murderer, she shouts. When it's Suhaila's turn to testify, she keeps contradicting herself, and the public prosecutor soon accuses her of being a volatile and manipulative woman, someone who has total control over her husband. Yet he can't pin anything on her. There's no physical evidence. The public prosecution service has to build its case using recorded conversations, witness statements, and the tire tracks found in the harbor. Ashraf himself continues to maintain his innocence. In exceptionally clear instructions to the jury, the judge formulates his take on the case as follows. It's unlikely that Sanai committed suicide or that she was a victim of a sex crime. The tire tracks and the conversations between her parents are the evidence upon which they should decide the case. The jurors reach a decision after three and a half hours. Ashraf is found guilty of his daughter's murder. He's sentenced to 14 years in prison and has his residence permit revoked. A year later, the Supreme Court upholds this decision. When the trial is over, Suhaila is officially charged with human trafficking and falsifying documents. Ashraf is charged with aiding and abetting human trafficking while in prison for his daughter's murder. He accepts his subsequent deportation to Iraq, but that doesn't stop him from writing a letter to his brother in which he threatens to kill him for not lying to the police on his behalf. I'll kill you just like I killed the unbelieving Sinai, he writes in a letter from March 2005. Detective Kurt Crow can breathe a sigh of relief. He still struggles to understand how a man can murder his own daughter. But now, at last, he has the confession that he'd been hoping for. Suhaila is found guilty of human trafficking and sentenced to 30 days in prison. She's also banned from entering Denmark for five years. This penalty is later reviewed by the Supreme Court and the deportation revoked because the police waited too long to prosecute. The Danish Criminal Code contains no concrete passages relating to crimes in which family honour is the main motive. However, these days, all instances of honour-based violence, defined as crimes informed by cultural or religious practices and attitudes to family honour, are carefully recorded. More than 100 women from a migrant background living in Denmark have received a new identity and a new home in an undisclosed location because they feared being killed by a family member. In 2009, 
Ashraf is deported from Denmark and put on a plane to Iraq. Suhaila and her two children continue to live in Shaland, Denmark's largest and most populous island. From Podimo, this is Murder in the North. A new episode every week, wherever you get podcasts. And for early access to episodes and to listen ad-free, subscribe to Podimo UK on Apple Podcasts. <laughs>